Welcome to the fourth episode of the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. We recorded this one a few months ago in November. I was really angry at the time. I kind of hijacked a hashtag, but we'll get into that. It's a different topic to usual, for once we mentioned neither Saudi Arabia nor Iran. Instead, we spoke about Muslim scholars and their relationship with authoritarian governments. Hope you find it interesting. So I was looking through Twitter earlier and I saw this hashtag Global Peace 17 and I looked into it and it's this conference being held in the UAE. Not the first, um, there's been many in the last few years, basically gathering faith leaders and particularly Muslim scholars and talking about peace and religion. So let me go through a few of the things that I saw. People saying we consider those who empathize with human values, embracing these noble values from their religion as partners and not enemies. Talking about how ISIS is un-Islamic. If we go by face value, this seems like a really, really good conference. Muslim scholars and faith leaders, different kind of faith leaders coming together to speak about peace. This sounds really good. Well, I can't disagree with any of what they're saying. It's not like I'd say this is false. It's what they're not saying, which is the problem. It's the fact that this is being held in the UAE, in a country which, in collaboration with Saudi Arabia, is currently, today, bombing Yemen into oblivion. They've bankrolled the coup and the regime of President Sisi in Egypt, which has been incredibly violent. You know, not only the Rabah massacre, but their displacement of entire villages in Sinai, their involvement in the civil war in Libya. Not to mention imprisoning 40,000 people, including a lot of civil society activists and human rights activists and journalists. And yet this isn't being mentioned. They seem to have nothing to say about this and no compunctions about working with such a regime. And that's what's really distasteful about it. The wider context of this is that we seem to be witnessing a period of loss of legitimacy, a legitimacy crisis, not only when it comes to the Arab regimes themselves, but also to the traditional, official, religious Islamic establishment. Yeah, there are a lot of really highly esteemed and respected scholars there, some from the West, from America, from the UK I've seen, and people like, for example, Abdullah bin Bayya, who is a really senior scholar. He's probably the most senior, one of the most senior scholars in the Islamic world, very massively respected. I respect him myself, but it's it's sad to see them participating in this. It just leaves a bad taste in the mouth to see the most senior Sunni scholars in the world being so power blind, so blind towards injustice. It's something that everyone can see. It's very stark. It's like the emperor having no clothes. And people across the Muslim world look at this and see their religious leaders rubbing shoulders with people who have blood on their hands past their elbows up to their shoulders and think. Do I really take moral guidance from these guys? And this is the problem. The loss of legitimacy is not really about a loss of faith, even though there is a lot of that. It's about a loss of moral guidance. I mean, a lot of Muslims no longer trust their religious establishment to be good moral guides. And this leaves a space for a lot of bad actors to step in. So, for example, ISIS, the fact that they can speak authoritatively to youth and quote religious scripture 
there was a time when this would be water off a duck's back because you wouldn't trust them. You wouldn't trust some random guy on the internet to tell you how to interpret verses of the Quran, especially in a way which is so violent and so outside of the ordinary. But when you've already lost trust in your own religious leaders, there's a lower barrier to that. And I think this is a point I don't see it discussed as much, and I think it really needs a lot of uh, a lot more attention, a lot more research. How far the official Islamic religious establishment has delegitimized itself in the eyes of a lot of young Muslims around the world through their justification and their collaboration with dictatorial, tyrannical regimes. I look at these scholars and I see what seems like a very Hobbesian mentality. Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher, he wrote the book Leviathan. He was one of the fathers of political philosophy in the West and he basically said the state needs to be all-powerful, it needs to be massive, it needs to be a leviathan so strong that nobody can dare to oppose it because humans by their nature are really, really terrible and you have to basically scare them or pound them into submission. And this seems to be the mentality. These scholars, they're talking about peace, but they don't look like they're against all violence. They only look like they're against non-state violence. When it's state violence, they don't really have much to say. Why are we talking about Islam when it comes to moral guidance in the first place. I think for a lot of Europeans, people in the West generally, they no longer look at religious leaders for, you know, as a model of morality. I think the fact is that, and I think this is a contentious point, Islam itself is a very political religion. And when I say it's very political, I don't mean political in the same sense that Islamists speak of it. I don't mean by that a religion that aspires for political power. Rather, I mean a religion which cares very deeply about certain political values. Whenever you speak about things like justice, things like equality, these things can only be political values. These values are deeply political, and they're deeply upsetting to the current political order. For people who know the history of Islam, Islam itself started as a social justice movement. The earliest Muslims were who? They weren't wealthy people. They were the underprivileged. They were people who were slaves or ex-slaves. They were women. They were the poor. In fact, one of the main criticisms leveled against the Prophet was that, look at the people who followed you. They're the underprivileged, they're the underclass. No one who's respectable, quote-unquote, has followed you. So for people more familiar with the Christian tradition, it's very similar to the people who followed Jesus. You know, the stories of them being lepers, women, poor people, indebted people, people who had no standing in society. The Prophet's companions were largely of a very similar composition, especially in the early days. Of course, the message of Islam was also able to, to attract people who are more or less reasonably wealthy, as, as well as some people who were legitimately wealthy, such as Uthman bin Affan, for example, one of the earliest companions. But the main appeal was to people who were being crushed by an existing system of oppression. And this is why we speak about Islam as a political religion. If you aspire to equality and justice, you have to do politics. And this is why we're talking about Islam and we're talking about religious scholarship in a podcast which is about authoritarianism. For a dictator, this kind of religion, which is very deeply concerned with values which have political implications and is basically has a revolutionary history, this is threatening to authoritarians. This brings us to the very effective strategy which Gulf regimes and rulers throughout Islamic history have had to deal with this, which is depoliticization. Depoliticization really works in two ways. 
one of those doesn't really have anything directly to do with Islam, which is to keep people distracted, keep people divided, keep people thinking more about their livelihood, about their entertainment, also scaremongering, warmongering, keep society sectarianized so that people feel more of an allegiance to their own group or their own team or their own tribe over you know, those principles of equality or justice. But then there's this other kind of depoliticization, which is promote this kind of religion that does not threaten dictatorship. And that's why you see, especially the UAE over the last few years, putting a massive amount of effort and resources into promoting apolitical religious leaders. Just to add more context, Islam is not a single discipline. Islam has a lot of different disciplines within. So what tyrants would do is that they would look at this entire intellectual tradition. Some of it might be, you know, very spiritual, very deeply spiritual, but not exactly political. Because, for example, if we're talking about spirituality or Sufism, it happens to be mostly about spirituality, about self-discovery, about self-assessment. It's about looking within yourself. But what they basically want to do is take this and inflate it so that it takes over the other parts of Islam, which are more concerned with political values and action within society. I think it's also important here to note that when the, the question of Islam as a political religion comes up, they won't be speaking about political values or justice or equality. They'll actually be speaking about law. What we call legalistic Islam, they call political Islam, and we disagree. We believe that Islamists are authoritarian populists, who are in many cases promoting a highly legalistic Islam rather than a political Islam rather than a just Islam. So you have this dynamic actually throughout history, probably became most pronounced during the Abbasid era, where they had a lot of success with it, which is basically to adopt you know, a dual approach towards Islamic scholars and Islamic movements. The ones who are concerned with social justice, with equality, with ethical behavior and policy making, you're very aggressive and very brutal with them. You silence them, you put them under house arrest, you torture them, you try to get them to publicly recant. And then there's the other track, which is the scholars who occupy themselves either with minor legalistic questions, such as how do you wash before you pray, or with spirituality. And you basically incentivize them to continue and to hyper-focus on this and not talk about the other stuff. And we argue that this had a distorting effect on the Islamic tradition so that these parts were inflated throughout history and we've ended up with an Islam today which very under-prioritizes social justice. And this is despite the fact, as we said, that Islam originally was very much concerned with this question. When tyrants interfere into religion, they pick that strand of religion which is most useful to them and they elevate it to the status of orthodoxy so that everything else becomes heretical. So there's this movement which you'll often see quoted in early Islamic history called the Khawarij. So there's, there's the common story and then there's the untold story. The common story is that these guys were essentially a historical version of ISIS. They were hyper-barbaric. They were insurgents. They killed a lot of people. They killed two of the first four caliphs, the rightly guided caliphs. And eventually they were defeated militarily and wiped out. The story which is not told is that these guys, the Khawarij, the term Khawarij is basically an umbrella term which was applied to a large number of different movements who actually stood for different things and had different methods of fighting for them. There was at least one 
the movement of Abu Bilal Mirdas, which was strictly non-violent and didn't carry arms, they were wiped out. So it's basically like the term terrorism in the modern day. The state applies the term terrorism to anybody who rejects the authority of the state, whether they be violent or not. In fact, in, in my reading about, about the Ibadi sect, the Ibadi sect is basically an Islamic sect which, is, which survives today in Oman and in, scattered in a few places in Algeria and Libya. These were actually ideological descendants of what we call the Khwarij movement. And it's interesting because when you actually go to their, to their books and read their history, they claim that the term Khawarij only came to be in the 40s Hijri. And the reason why this is significant is that this was the Umayyad era. So what they're actually saying is that the term Khawarij was only used as a political term after the fact, after those series of rebellions had already taken place. And as you mentioned before, they didn't have the same objectives, they didn't have the same values. Some of them had important differences. Uh, some of them were actually enemies to, to one another, but they all rebelled against the central authority. If you're looking for a modern-day equivalent, it's like how Saudi Arabia said a couple of years ago that people who advocate atheism are terrorists. I think they also called a bunch of nonviolent activists uh, terrorists. So anyone who advocates for anything that, by their definition, upsets quote-unquote public order is a terrorist. There were a couple of Saudi woman activists who went out in their cars basically protesting for the right to drive, who were arrested and tried in terrorism court. Yeah, it was Lajain al-Hadlul and Maysa al-Amudi. But anyway, we digress. We come back to the main point, which is the way that the religious establishment, the Islamic religious establishment, delegitimizes itself in the eyes of a lot of millions of young Muslims because it is somehow blind on the question of tyranny. They're the tame scholars, they're depoliticized, and this is exactly what dictators want. It's not only their failing, although it is their failing, but it's also a deliberate strategy to cultivate these guys, to promote them, to fund them, to send them around the world to do big talks, to hold glitzy conferences for them, like hashtag Global Peace 17. We said before that this is not really about faith. It's more about moral guidance. It's, I mean, it's also important to note that there are many Muslims, young Muslims, because of the question of moral guidance, have a crisis of faith, and have, some of them have lost their faith. Because they look at this and they see, this can't be God. This can't be divine. And it strikes people as very unprincipled. You know, they've seen the arguments which say, Islam is a violent religion, you have this vi these violent verses in the Quran, etc. And they might find explanations for them, but then they, realize, they find out that the people who, who are providing these explanations are actually cheerleaders for brutal dictators who are committing their own violence. Yeah, so basically they shoot themselves in the foot because this scholar, he might be giving very, very elaborate and very humanistic arguments on why ISIS is wrong, for example, to kill people, but they wouldn't say a word against Sisi killing people, for example. And this dichotomy between state violence and non-state violence. So the dictators are basically using these guys to faith-wash their authoritarianism and put a, a sheen on, on state use of violence. That's a good term, faith-washing tyranny. Yeah, it's been mentioned in the context of Israel a lot, you know, using interfaith dialogue in order to generate positive press and buzz and distract people from brutal stuff that you're doing. One of the arguments that are employed by people who 
might be of good intention. They want to explain why our very respected scholars would do such a thing. So there's a number of arguments that they employ. One of them, they say, you never know, maybe the scholar is coerced. I mean, what if the scholar, the tyrant has something on him and he's simply coerced? What, what would you say to that? Well, it's possible, but on such a large scale, there's in the Arab world, many activists manage to be very vocal about their principles despite the personal risk. Not everyone can handle it. We have to admit that from the start, and some people aren't cut out for this. But if you're not brave enough to speak out against violence wherever it is, then you're probably not the right kind of person to be taking moral guidance from, and you shouldn't be an Islamic scholar. So we're witnessing the situation where secular activists in the Arab world are displaying more moral integrity and more courage than some Islamic scholars. One of the same muftis who was at that conference was talking about crises of faith and the rise of atheism within the Muslim community. I don't know whether they actually don't see it or whether they see it and they're ignoring it. And you know, we have a saying in Arabic, if you know, then that's a problem. And if you don't know, then that's an even bigger problem because it's your job to know. There's a parallel I want to draw between these guys and Western political leaders like Tony Blair. So there's this CVE industry in the West which relies on or is trying to lean heavily on faith leaders to speak out against nonviolence. I mentioned Tony Blair because he's probably the most blatant example. He has this center, I think it's called the Center for Religion and Geopolitics. It's basically focused on analyzing the role of religion in global conflicts today. And he has this attitude that wherever there's a conflict, let's look for the religious reasons behind it. Let's look for the extremism and the extremist interpretations of scripture and address them. Which is really ironic because one of the most destructive instances of violence in modern years was the war that he unleashed on Iraq, which is still reverberating until today. And he wouldn't have you address that because it's secular. There isn't really a religious underpinning to it. So it's like the scholars only caring about non-state violence and being blind to state violence. There's this insistence on only focusing on religious conflict and ignoring just ordinary conflict. So we talked about excuses and the fact that it doesn't seem likely that all of these men are coerced. They basically have this frustration. Some of them know that the religious establishment is losing legitimacy and they complain that people aren't taking Muslim scholars seriously anymore. And I've even seen it said that you know, whenever X issues a fatwa, people just start shouting about Yemen at him because he hasn't said anything about Yemen. So they can see that it's happening and that it's delegitimizing them. But instead of seeing that this is a systematic problem, they think this is somehow a one-off. And can't you just get past his lack of sight on the Yemen issue and, you know, listen to what he has to say on X or Y? You know, we talk a lot about paradigmatic problems in our conversations about our work. And we define a paradigmatic problem as a problem that derives from the same paradigm as the person who's trying to solve it. It's kind of like trying to push over a box while you're sitting inside that box or, or trying to pull a rug while you're sitting on top of that rug. In a similar sense, a lot of our esteemed scholars seem to be proceeding from a very traditionist paradigm, which sees state violence as somehow more justifiable than non-state violence, and that sees rebellion against leaders, even if those leaders are unjust, even if those leaders are corrupt, that sees rebellion against them, and even if the rebellion is non-violent, sees it as an illegal, impermissible, unjustifiable act. So there are people who will agree with us and say conflict is fundamentally political, 
and all of this stuff about religious aspects is a red herring. We're actually not among them because we've both been very outspoken advocates of Islamic reform. And we believe that there is a problem and we need to address it within the Muslim community. However, it delegitimizes our work on this when some of the people on our side also calling out for Islamic reform are basically these guys from Western leaders who have very hypocritical double standards and also support authoritarian regimes to people like Abdel Fattah Hassisi, the dictator of Egypt, who's basically given speeches at Al-Azhar calling for Islamic reform, to Mohammed bin Salman, who's been quite open in the last few months about his desire for new interpretations, and there's been news about his intention to set up a center for re-evaluating hadith and stuff like this, and these guys are really messing it up. So what happens is that when people like us, who are genuinely interested in the question of Islamic reform, genuinely interested in rediscovery of a human rights-centric Islamic tradition and a social justice-centered Islamic tradition. We talk about Islamic reform and then we get these tyrants also speaking about Islamic reform. And that kind of delegitimizes and discredits the entire project. You basically can't expect a tyrant or a dictator to be on the side of real genuine reform. A lot of these reform efforts, I mean, They've been trumpeted repeatedly for many years. Initiatives have been started. They've quietly disappeared and stopped. Well, the point is that you, you can barely get people excited about the kind of Islamic reform, which means more legitimization of tyranny and more excuses for tyranny. And then the problem of Western countries, Western leaders, even well-meaning people in the West who basically can't see the difference and don't see the difference between independent intellectualism and government-sponsored faith-washing programs. So Hassan Farhan al-Maliki, for example, is an independent voice. He works independent from government, and, and because he's independent, sometimes he disagrees with the government. But this is the kind of reform, this is the kind of voice that we really need to protect. And it's not just Hassan Farhan al-Maliki. Salman al-Auda, for example, is also in jail. There are many scholars and many Muslim thinkers who are in jail all over the Arab and Muslim world. Recently, for example, our friend Mustafa Akyol was detained when he was trying to leave Malaysia after giving a speech in which he argued against the death penalty for apostasy, for example. So these things happen all over the world. And it's important to make a distinction here between independent reformists who are independent in the cause of Islamic reform because they see it as the best thing for Muslims versus government-funded reform programs who are actually more interested in this because it helps entrench existing regimes. So let's talk a little bit about history. Earlier I said that this has a long legacy in our history. The Abbasids played a massive role in the depoliticization of Islam, and they were very brutal about it. There are also major events in relatively recent history which pushed us towards this situation in which Islamic scholarship is largely dependent on the state and therefore can't have independent opinions. I'm talking about the colonial era. So throughout Muslim history, the religious establishment was funded by independent foundations. They're called waqfs. And the concept of charitable trust in English common law actually was originally imported from this. But these waqfs were basically independent trusts, which provided income for religious scholars, religious establishments, and they were impoverished during the colonial era, and then they completely collapsed immediately following it. The state absorbed them 
and dismantled them and said, we can do this better. We'll take this money and these assets and we'll provide an income for these religious institutions. And they were impoverished and they had to go hat in hand to the post-colonial regimes and say, will you fund us? And now you've lost your independence. It's not that the religious establishment before this was vehemently against tyranny. You find a lot of voices throughout Islamic history that were excusing tyranny. But this took it to another level because they actually lost their independence. Rather than being a power center in society that can push against the state, they kind of became a department of the state. You mentioned the Abbasids and you know, their relationship with Islam. And, and I think that's astute enough because we only got a theocracy in Islamic history during the Abbasid era. But I think the dynamic goes way before the Abbasids. You, know, you will see it with the Umayyads. And you will actually see some elements of it even before the Umayyads. So this goes before with the Waqf stuff. There's a, an interesting book by Noah Feldman called The Fall and Rise of the Islamic State. It was published in 2008, so it has nothing to do with the ISIS Islamic State. He's basically talking about religious states in the Muslim world. And he makes the argument that an independent religious establishment was actually part of the checks and balances in the Muslim world throughout history. So when you say checks and balances today, obviously you think of an institutionalized system of separate powers of government, most clearly typified by America, where the constitution very clearly lays it out, and it was part of the design of the state. But he says in Muslim history, because the religious establishment was independent of the state and they had their own funding, and they also had large amounts of legitimacy through the respect of the population, they could push back upon authoritarian actions. There was always dictatorship, but when it went beyond the pale or they started instituting really high taxation or behavior which was shocking even in the pre-modern world, they would be able to push back and they would have some measure of protection and the government would listen to them because you basically have this religious institution which has the ears and the respect of the entire population and if you outright attack it, you'll have an insurrection on your hand. So you had this rough balance of powers. This is often missed in debates about secularism today because people have a very crude and simplistic understanding of secularism, which it's basically religion, nope, get that out of here. And they don't see the different roles that religion has played throughout history, here actually being a guarantor of rights in some sense. What I find annoying about certain understanding of secularism, it seems to put secularism above liberalism, which is to say that they look at secularism and they, it almost feels like authoritarian secularism doesn't exist. I believe that there is liberal secularism and there's illiberal secularism, and illiberal secularism is nothing to be cheered. So they have this dogma of independence of the state from religion, but they don't realize that if the religion isn't also independent from the state, you can end up with exactly the kind of stuff which you were trying to avoid, which is injustice and tyranny justified using religious means. So what we have in liberal secularism is that you draw this wall between church and state or between the religious establishment and state to ensure that neither of these can gain hegemonic power on the other. However, when it comes to our own Arab style of authoritarian secularism, what you actually have is the ruling establishment completely dominating the religious establishment and using it as a tool of power. So basically, to summarize, it's a sad state which Islamic scholarship has reached, and things like this Global Peace Conference are basically just examples of how, with a total lack of independence, 
the state is basically able to move them about like sock puppets, get them to say what it wants, to, to justify its actions, and really what we're seeing isn't much to do with Islam. I mean, why is it that they talk about we shouldn't mix Islam with politics? Isn't this an example of mixing Islam with politics? If by politics you mean political values, such as social justice values, then we're all for it. But if by politics you mean entrenching a certain actor or legitimizing a certain regime, then that's not what Islam is for. I remember you tweeted something several years ago. You basically said, when religion meets politics, it's always the politics that wins, and it's always the politics that ends up riding on religion. Let me qualify that by saying what I mean by politics here is the political establishment or the ruling establishment. Whenever religion becomes a tool of power, whenever it becomes a tool of legitimization of a dictatorship, religion always loses. It's interesting here to actually make a comparison between Sunnism and Shiism when it comes to this. In fact, We've actually been talking about Sunni religious establishment. Shia religious establishment, on the other hand, has traditionally been funded not by waqf establishments, but by the devotees directly. And the reason why it developed in this way was because it was historically in the opposition, and it didn't have the space at a certain critical period of Islamic history, did not have as much space to become mostly funded by waqfs or charitable trusts. They were too politically persecuted to establish institutions. And for this reason, the Shia religious establishment actually remains quite dynamic till today. So you can see figures such as Sistani had a tremendous positive influence in Iraq over the past decade. And you can see that he's very independent and you can also see that he's actually quite outspoken. All the political parties in Iraq, including Sunni political parties, deeply care about his opinion. Even if they disagree with him, he has a voice that everyone has to contend with. I contend that one of the reasons why the Shia religious establishment maintained this kind of dynamism is because it was primarily funded by its own devotees. And for that reason, in the post-colonial period, this loss of income did not affect them as deeply and as disruptively as it did the Sunni establishment. And as entrepreneurs as well as activists, I guess we'd advocate that religious figures who want to maintain their independence and be able to speak about injustice from any side should think about institutions and think about business models and think about how to guarantee their independence through funding, especially with the proliferation of different funding models in the 21st century. You know, think like a startup. Our scholars have a lot of respect and they deserve a lot of respect. The religious establishment, the scholarly religious establishment, has played a very key role in our history as Muslims. We care about it a lot, which is why we're so frustrated, why we're having this discussion, and we have this discussion very regularly. If we didn't care so deeply about Islam, we'd just say, you know, whatever, burn it all. I don't care what they do. They're just tyrants and oppressors like the rest of them. Ultimately, the more our scholars speak against injustice, the more they will find support among Muslims, and this itself will empower them to be able to push against tyranny and push against tyrannical regimes. We know that it's not easy. We know that anyone who faces these regimes ends up in jail or ends up worse. But then again, if you claim that this is really about the most important question there is, if this is about God, if this is about Islam, then isn't it worth it? The very scholars who we look up to most in our history are the ones who went through brutal torture because they refused to give up their opinions and justify tyrants. People like Imam Malik, for example. 
if you just go down history and look at the biographies of the most prominent scholars down Islamic history, you will find that every one of them was persecuted at some point of his or her life. So to our scholars, I wish to say, your legitimacy is very important. Please don't, don't squander that legitimacy by apologizing for tyranny. Just so that this isn't an entirely negative episode, I want to give a positive angle. I want to mention Sheikh Imad Affet. He was an Islamic scholar at Al-Azhar University in Egypt. He worked in the Department of Fatwas. He was a deputy to the Grand Mufti. He used to go to Tahrir Square during the revolution to stand side by side with the protesters in 2011. Because of that, he was really popular even among secular people. They could see that he was an honorable and principled man. He couldn't stand injustice. He called the revolution a form of calling to good and forbidding evil, which is an Islamic duty. And when he was teaching at Al-Azhar during the revolution, he'd wait until his class arrived and then take them down to Tahrir Square. And what would he do when he was there? He'd pick up the rubbish with his own hands. He was shot and killed by security forces during a protest in December 2011, in very unclear circumstances which have never been fully investigated. The way he was shot at very close range indicates that he was targeted deliberately, and the investigation seems to have been covered up. Some people even believe that Al-Azhar was complicit. His face was immortalized on many pieces of street art and graffiti on Egypt's streets, and he's remembered as Sheikh al-Thawra, the Sheikh of the Revolution. God rest his soul. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you've learned something. Please share it with people that you think would find it interesting. It's a contentious topic, so we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Tweet at us or use the hashtag ArabTyrantManual to join the discussion. See you next time. ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيف